I want to make one quick comment as I open, unrelated to the study at hand this morning. The events of the last week have been on your minds. They're certainly very visible in the media today, as, as you would expect. And anytime things of this nature happen, it's inevitable that people begin to think that might drive the sermon for that week, at least in most churches. In fact, I heard Max Lucado, and you may know that name, he was being interviewed, and he made the observation on Friday that pastors all over the country were reworking their sermons for Sunday because of the events of Friday. Well, I take a different view of that. And my view is that if we let the enemies work in one situation, compound, if he's allowed to take that work and then compound it by pulling pastors out of the word of God throughout the nation and direct them toward pontificating on current events or whatever might come from those current events, though there might be some helpful thought in there that I could offer, the bottom line is the real solution to all of that is found in the Bible anyway. So the more we're in the word of God, the more opportunity we have to see God mold our hearts and turn us away from the sin that dominates our culture. So if I look at my role in the responsibility God's granted me as one to train you up in the Word of God and to edify you in the Word of God and to prepare you to live according to the Word of God, then the thing I need to do is teach from the Word of God. So that's the reason why I don't generally take my sermon and move it according to the politics or the current events of the day. I'm in the Word because I don't know anything better to give you. And though we may be talking about Joseph today, I can assure you there's some aspects of Joseph's life that examine some of the things we've seen in the last week, some of the tragedy and and some of the, the questions that come out of those tragedies were asked, I'm sure, by Joseph when he was experiencing things in his life. And so the answers are found here as well. So I just want to make that observation in case you might have wondered, well, why didn't he take any time to talk about what everyone else is talking about? Well, in a way, I am. But I'm just talking about it from the biblical point of view. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the ways in which we have been able to serve you here and for the fruit that it's bearing, both in this building and the ones next door, as well as in the neighborhood and elsewhere in our lives, in our families, in our workplace. There's probably many ways in which you're working that none of us even see fully yet. And yet we also see what we have seen, and we are confident to know you are at work. We thank you for the word. We thank you for study. We thank you for prayer. I thank you, Father, for fellowship. I thank you for hearts that want to obey. And we look forward, Father, to seeing what you will do in the word today to cause us to do all the more of those things. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a great story of children arriving for Sunday school. And they're excited because it's Christmas season and they were going to do a Christmas party for all the kids in the class that week. And the children's director had put a big table out with all the food for the party. And it was a long table, so the kids were instructed to just come through that food line from one end of the table and fill their plates as they go down the line. But on the first end as they come, there was a, a plate of chocolate chip cookies, and there weren't many of them. And so the teacher had put a little note in front of the plate, and the note said, Take only one. God is watching. And as the children move down the table, they go from item to item to item, but eventually they come to the other end of the table, and there's another plate at the other end of the table, and that plate is filled with various Christmas chocolates and, and other little candies. And next to this plate, one of the children had taken the initiative to write his own little note. And he put his note in front of the chocolates, and his note said, Take all you want. God is busy watching the cookies. <laughs> I love that story, not only because it has a Christmas theme, which works out really well for us right now, but I love that story because I think we think like this child quite often. We just don't realize we think like this child. We think we can escape the watchful eye of God. 
And what happens, of course, is when you assume that God or let's take a different example, when you assume your boss or your parents or your spouse isn't watching, then you're likely to act differently. You begin to relax, right? You begin to allow the flesh to rule because now you're not under the penalty of somebody else's watch. And small children demonstrate this principle better than anyone. When they want to do something they're not supposed to do, what they first do generally is they sneak away to a place in the house where mom's not watching, which is why moms have that rule where if anybody's quiet for too long, something's wrong, right? Because that's part of the sin nature at work. It's to hide and conceal our sin. Last week in the study, we looked at Joseph had left his father and had traveled to Shechem to find his brothers. But his brothers were away shepherding the flock outside of the gaze of their father and outside of Joseph's gaze because they didn't like that kind of scrutiny, we assume. And they hate Joseph. They hate him with a hatred that's hard to understand even. They're jealous of him and they have these other sinful passions. But as long as they were near the father and under his observation, they didn't act on those things, not as much as they would have wanted to. But now they've moved so far away to a remote place outside their father's authority that now they're going to have their chance. And that's what leads us into chapter 37 back today in verse 15. We watch, as that child's note might say, we watch the sons working in a way that implies God isn't watching. Jacob isn't watching. We have our opportunity to act against Joseph. But as we studied last week also in this story, These circumstances are going exactly according to God's plan. God is using the sin of the brother's hearts to affect an outcome that he desires. He is working to bring Joseph eventually into slavery and then with him his whole family into Egypt. That's the game plan. And he has two purposes in this plan, as we know from Scripture. First, he's in the process of bringing Israel into Egypt because he promised to Abraham that they would spend this time sojourning in a land that was not theirs. The nation will spend time in Egypt. While they're there, they have an opportunity to incubate, to grow into a great nation. Because the promise to Abraham was that they would eventually destroy the Canaanites and take over the land of Canaan. But when God gave that promise to Abraham, he was one guy. Right now, they're only a family of about 14 plus some servants. And so as a result, they're not big enough to do that work yet. They have to have time to grow into a nation of two million people, which is about the size they are when they finally leave Egypt. But where are they going to grow safely in an incubator in which God can do the best work? Well, he's decided that that's in Egypt. We'll study more why that's true when we get to chapter 38. The second reason he's going to put them in this place is to create pictures or to create understanding concerning greater things he intends to do later through his son, the Messiah. So he's creating a picture here of the coming seed. Joseph is that picture primarily, that of Christ. His brothers are part of it, too. He and their father form this picture of the nation of Israel, as it will be constituted in Jesus' day. And then there are many other details that line up in the story, some of which we'll see today. So as Joseph enters Shechem, remember he entered and he didn't find his brothers. And then he's told they've gone on to a place called Dotham, which is 15 miles further north. Let's pick up there again, just so we have some context and remind ourselves of what he found when he got to Shechem. Verse 15, a man found him and behold, he was wandering in the field and the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pastoring the flock. Then the man said, they have moved from here for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. I wanted to come back to these verses just briefly because Dothan's an important detail in the story. The meaning of the town's name is a bit obscure in Hebrew. 
there are several theories. The best two are that it means either two cisterns. The cistern is a pit in the ground that you put water in. Or it maybe it means law or custom. It's located, Dotham is located on the normal caravan route that would proceed from Gilead in the east westward until it hits the Mediterranean Sea. Then it links up through the Herod Valley to Jezreel to the coast. It links up with the Via Mar, the road of the sea, the way of the sea. And the Via Mar was essentially the superhighway of that part of the world. It connected the Near East and the Far East into Egypt, going along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. This is the place God wants to draw Joseph and his brothers. He wants them in Dotham. Why? Well, because as you're going to find out, of course, this puts them on the road in which those traders will appear and take Joseph down into Egypt. So the brothers hate Joseph. That hatred is their own. God didn't inspire that hatred, but the Lord is working with it. He's using it. It's a tool in his hand, and he's turning it the way he wants to turn it so that it can become useful for him in good purposes. Let's go forward from there. Verse 18. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then... Let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now, the pit was empty without any water in it. Joseph approaches, we're told, from a distance, and his brothers can see him coming long before he reaches them, so they have a chance to talk about what they would do. They're probably able to spot him by that tunic. By the very thing that he wore, it made clear who he was. And so they begin to plot against him. The word for plot in Hebrew is nakal, or nakal, N-A-K-A-L. It literally means to be crafty, to be deceitful. So they're conspiring here in a sneaky, crafty way to kill their own brother. And why? His righteousness convicts them and leaves them jealous of the way the father in the family appreciates Joseph's righteousness, his dependability. So it's exposing their unrighteousness by comparison. And people hate that. We all hate that. We all hate when who we are truly is exposed and nothing exposes us better than coming into close contact with someone whose nature and righteousness is opposite to our sinfulness. And so we have one of two choices when that comes into our experience. We can either admit and humble ourselves to the fact that we have these deficits and we should be thinking differently about them, or we respond in attacking the one who has made us feel that way. Here's another picture of Christ, by the way. Because you remember how Jesus' Jewish brothers, the nation of Israel, conspired against him and plotted to kill him. And by the way, they did it in much the same fashion before they ever really saw him up close. The Sanhedrin council in Jerusalem was plotting to kill Jesus even when Jesus was still some distance from the city of Jerusalem. And then as Jesus approached the city in the day that he entered for his crucifixion, the Pharisees even sent emissaries ahead of him to warn him on the road that if he would come to Jerusalem, he will be killed, hoping that he would avoid him coming. Luke 13 tells us this in Luke 13, 31. 
Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. I love that scene in Luke. We studied it years ago when we looked at Luke. But it's interesting that the thing Jesus says to go tell Herod are things that Herod couldn't care less about. But they would be things that Pharisees would have great interest in. So though they said, don't come because Herod might kill you, Jesus knows that it's not Herod that's going to threaten him. It's the Pharisees. And so he answers by giving the Pharisees an answer, not Herod. He says, I am the one who casts out demons. I am the one who performs cures. Yes, I am the son of God. I am the promised Messiah. And you see it, too. But it must not be that a prophet of God would die outside of Jerusalem. So I know where I have to be. John also writes in his first chapter that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And Joseph is picturing that his own are not receiving him. The brothers call Joseph the dreamer. And by that term, you and I discover the motives for their actions. They are set against Joseph's prophetic dreams. Remember the dreams that said that Joseph would rule over his family. And the idea that he might rule over them compels them to act against him. Notice in verse 13, they say, well, what will become of his dreams if we kill him? Their motive is to stop the dream from coming true. How do you stop the dream that said Joseph will rule? How do you stop that from coming true? Well, naturally, you kill the man who's said to be the one in charge, the one who will have that role of ruling. We'll kill him. Now he can't rule. Simple enough. And to that end, some of the groups say, let's kill Joseph and we'll dispose of his body by putting him in the pit and then we'll lie to our father about how all of this transpires. The pit he's talking about that they're talking about are these empty cisterns. In ancient days, when you wanted to have water available in a dry climate, you would collect it when you had the chance, often in a, in a rainy season or at a time of the year when, when rain was falling frequently. And then you had to have a place to store it. And they would hewn out of the rock of the ground, out of the hard ground. They hewn these these big pits and they would be uh, fairly deep to hold plenty of water. And they'd have smooth sides so that if these were empty at some point in the year and you fell into one, you were certain to die of exposure because you had no hope to get out on your own. Somebody would have to help you out. They were deep enough and they were smooth enough on the side that you couldn't escape on your own. So they also make excellent jail cells. And that was the idea. They're going to throw Joseph into this pit. And while they originally planned here to kill him and throw him in, Reuben, the firstborn, he objects to the plan overall. He doesn't want to do anything to Joseph. In fact, the text tells us he's planning to secretly take Joseph and send him home and save him from this. So he argues for simply a different solution. He argues for simply putting Joseph into the pit without killing him. The logic he uses for his brothers is, why should we be guilty individually of the blood of our brother? Somebody's going to have to kill him if we choose to kill him. Instead, if we throw him in there, none of us are technically guilty of his death, are we? It's a kind of absurd legalism that comes to that conclusion. But it's a way of saying none of us will have the blood of our brother on our hands individually. And that was his logic. The brothers like that logic. Now, it's interesting that Reuben wants to save Joseph, but he feels he has to deceive his brothers in order to carry out that outcome. Why doesn't he, the oldest son, just tell his brothers that we aren't going to go forward on this plan, that I object and we shouldn't do it? I think it's because he knew 
that if he were to make that objection to his brothers, that he would be overruled by them and he may be subject to the same jeopardy. As oldest in the family, he has the authority under his father to own the welfare of all the brothers. So if they come back without one of their brothers, Reuben is held accountable for it under the customs of the day. So he knew that if Joseph died on his watch, his father would not only be crushed, but he might take out his anger and sorrow on Reuben. And you have to remember, Reuben is the guy that's already been messing around with one of the concubines. He hasn't exactly won his father over lately, so he may be in real jeopardy. So I don't want you to see him doing this entirely for magnanimous reasons. There's probably a little bit of selfish interest in this as well. What's most interesting to me is his struggle to stand firm for his brother. That is something that will haunt Reuben and his tribe forever. Because the tribe of Reuben will share the same ignominious future because of the same poor character traits that Reuben himself has exhibited so far in our story. Reuben's tribe never produces any military leaders, any judges, any kings, or any prophets. They are without any distinction in the nation of Israel. And that is in reflection of their leader that makes it so. Because in his inability to stand firm in the right things and to contend with the struggle of his flesh, he shows himself to be a man who is not strong enough to handle leadership. And his entire tribe, it seems, reflects that historically. So as Joseph arrives, they pounce. Notice the first thing they do. They strip him of his symbol of authority, that robe, that that tunic that his father gave him. In fact, they may have left him nearly naked, depending on what else he may have been wearing. That also mirrors Jesus' story, do you know? In the way Jesus was stripped before he endured the cross, in the way that his clothes were taken, and in his nakedness he endured the shame of the cross, fulfilling this picture. Paul tells us that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth after he was crucified. So here's Joseph, stripped and thrown into the lower parts of the earth, so to speak. And that pictures Jesus when Paul says in Ephesians 4.8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fulfill all things. So Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit to kill him. And Joseph's time in the pit pictures Jesus's time in the grave, under the ground, so to speak, having been put to death. Now, we realize Joseph has not actually died, but in the way the brothers think of him, he's as good as dead. He ain't coming out of the pit as far as they're concerned. It's only a matter of time. Like Joseph, Jesus, we're told, descends below the earth. In fact, Matthew 12, 40 we see Jesus saying this about his future. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So from his brother's point of view, Joseph is dead. Now they can relax. Look at verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites were coming from Gilead. And their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 
shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So the brothers sit down, we're told, and they eat while their brother languishes in the pit nearby. Later in Genesis 42, we'll learn that during this moment, Joseph is actually busy pleading for mercy from inside the pit while they are nearby within earshot eating this meal. We get that detail from the brothers recounting of the story in Genesis 42. Nevertheless, they ignore his pleas, obviously. In fact, in Amos, the book of Amos, Amos 6, 6, it tells us that they showed no remorse or grief for what they had done. Those are important details because you can imagine this a couple of different ways if you didn't know better. You might imagine them sitting around silently feeling guilty while they hear their brother's cries. Or you might have imagined they walked away and got out of earshot so they wouldn't be troubled by those cries. Scripture doesn't let us come to those conclusions. Scripture says they stayed, they heard, they didn't care. It's a pretty heartless bunch. Oh, by the way, the next time they'll eat a meal in the presence of Joseph, Joseph will be at the head of the table. And about this time, they watch a caravan of traders come by, headed from the east to the west, and then soon to turn south and go into Egypt. We're told they are Ishmaelites. They are descendants of Abraham, but they're also called Midianites. Well, Ishmaelites descended from Hagar, from Ishmael, obviously. Midianites descend from Abraham and his third wife, Keturah. So both Midianites and Ishmaelites trace back to Abraham. Eventually, historically, the Midianites are just absorbed by Ishmael, by the Ishmaelites. So at this stage, those two words are being used interchangeably by Moses because they're two sides of the same coin. There's really the same group of people. Judah is the first now to speak up at this point. Seeing those traitors coming, he suggests a different way of disposing of Joseph. He says, hey, why do we have to be guilty of killing him? And why don't we profit from him? Let's sell him. And then we don't have to be guilty of murder and we make money. And the brothers apparently like this idea. The Midianites buy Joseph as a slave for 20 pieces of silver. They take him into Egypt. Now, you, you should see right there another parallel to Christ, right? Jesus was betrayed by his brothers, the Jewish people, in other words, specifically by Judas. And the brothers, the same name. The one who sells is Judah. The one who sells is Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And I would think that the reason the numbers aren't matching is because Joseph is merely a picture of Christ. And so there's been a lesser to greater relationship maintained even in the amount of money. So we know Joseph's brothers are intent on blocking Joseph's dreams. The whole idea, the whole purpose of this plan was I don't want the dream to come true. And now we're going to take care of this dreamer by selling him to Egypt. So they turn on their brother and they devise this plan by their actions. They send him to Egypt. Certain in that plan that they have now foiled any possibility of Joseph ever ruling over them. They put that to rest. As they do this, each brother is doing what he sees fit to do in his heart. He is doing what he thought was best. Those sinful thoughts were his own. Their sinful hearts directed them. If you had been there in the moment with a microphone and you had walked up to one of them and said, tell me what you were thinking when you sold him into Egypt. None of them would have said, I felt God telling me. They would have said that no good loser brother was trying to rule over us, but we fixed him. Each man must have felt that he was fully in control of his own actions, fully in control of his own decisions. They must have. And yet we know God promised Abraham that his family would go to Egypt. And in chapter 38, we're going to learn that God has good reasons for making that decision. So God intended for Joseph and his family to spend hundreds of years 
in Egypt. So let's consider those two truths side by side. We inevitably reach what seems to be a circular conclusion. God gave Joseph a dream that told his brothers Joseph would rule over them. The dream increased their hatred, leading them to send Joseph into Egypt to prevent the dream from coming true. But because he ends up in Egypt, he's able to rise to a position of power that forces his brothers to accept his rule over them. The very action that the brothers took to prevent the dream from coming true is the very thing that made the dream come true. It begs big questions, doesn't it? What if they'd never sold him? Because they made this decision, the dream did come true. What if they had not made this decision? Would the dream still have come true? Where is God's role in this chain of events? That's the fundamental question. Did God merely know that these things were going to happen and so he gave Joseph the prediction because he knew that it was going to go this way? Is it just lucky for God that the sons were willing to sell Joseph instead of killing him? Because if they had killed him, it certainly would have messed up the plan. What if they had never done anything against Joseph? What if Reuben had succeeded in saving him? Would that have messed up the dream and God would have had to have plan B? Was there plan B? Where does God's sovereignty end and man's will and his own decision making step in? Well, the God of the Bible, the one we know from Scripture, has no limits on his power. And yet, in my experience, we often choose to limit him by how we distort the teaching of Scripture. And of all the ways we can do that, probably the most common limit that we try to place on God's sovereignty is the limit of our own will. Many of us have been taught that God can't or won't interfere in our thoughts and in our actions because people will often say, well, God loves us too much to deny us our free will. That statement is trotted out as an obvious truth that most of us, I think, accept without ever questioning it. Well, of course, it's a sign of love that God doesn't impinge on our free will. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what the story of Joseph is teaching? In truth, that view is not only unbiblical, it's nonsensical. The only thing the Bible says that God can't or won't do is sin. The Bible never declares that man has a will that God cannot impinge upon or will not impinge upon. As prideful, sinful creatures, we like to think it's that way because we don't like anyone telling us what to do. But the Bible does not say that, nor does it declare that God is a hands off God in the affairs of men. On the contrary, the Bible says he's a hands on God. Look at what he's been teaching us here. Look at the opposite conclusion you draw from the story of Joseph. God is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, and he is the potter and we are the clay, according to Scripture. His power, therefore, is greater than any man's will. And there is nothing in creation that stops the Lord's will from coming to be done. Nothing. Furthermore, the Lord is at work to use everything and everyone to accomplish his will. And the Bible teaches even that the sin and the wrath of men, like the sin of these brothers, will one day become part of God's plan to praise him. Psalms tells us this in Psalms 76:10, for the wrath of man shall praise you with a remnant of wrath. You will gird yourself. Every thought, every action of every man on earth is part of God's purpose and plan and under his control. In Psalms, we hear that God's plan spans generations of men. In Psalms 33, 11, we're told the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. 
So if you want to put a little series of notes in your Bible or make some notes for yourself, the first point I would make is God's plans are bigger than one man and one life. They span generations. And we're seeing this here through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Joseph. Secondly, he delivers his plans to men. He takes his plans and he delivers them to men so that their hearts, man's hearts, are inclined to work his plan. Psalms 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And then God enacts his plans by guiding and directing our will and our actions so that we get where he wants us to be. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And then should a man determine at some point to do something other than what God has purposed, God will intervene. Psalms 33.10 says, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. In some future day, when the Antichrist comes and rules the world in tribulation, we're told in Revelation 17 that the world leaders of that time will all give their power to the Antichrist and allow him to be the supreme ruler of the world. Now, a world leader is not prone to giving up his power. Wouldn't you agree? And what are the odds that every world leader will simultaneously decide that the best thing for them is to give all their power to another guy? Well, we find out why that happens in Revelation 17, 17. We're told, for God has put it in their hearts, in the hearts of these rulers, God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. You can't get a clear example, I think, of God's method. Notice he put in their hearts a desire to accomplish his purpose so that together those men and Lord have a common purpose. That's not a one time affair. That's not an exception to the rule. That's how God works all the time. But go back to the story of Joseph for a moment and consider what we know about those brothers. Did those brothers sit there in their moment of decision and feel the Lord in their hearts causing these new thoughts? Did they say, you know, I think God's will would be that I do it this way. Of course not, because God's not the author of their sin. Those thoughts were sin. Those thoughts were the flesh. Those thoughts were who they are naturally as sinful men acting out in the worst possible way. What God said was, I can take that sin and I can turn it to praise for my name. I can take that sin and turn it to glory for Israel. I can take that sin and do wonderful things with it. What we see in the Bible is nothing about God loving us so much that he won't interfere with our will. The Bible's definition of God's love is exactly the opposite. The Bible defines love as that while we were yet sinners, Christ laid down his life for us and that the father loved the world so much that he gave his only son for us. That's the definition of love. But it goes further than that on an individual scale. He loves each of us individually, those in the room who are Christian, who know the Lord in their heart. He loved us so much he determined to override our will. For by our will and our nature, we were enemies of God. By our will and by our nature, we reject the gospel. It is foolishness to us. By our will and our nature, we oppose the things of God. We oppose his people. We see the gospel as foolishness and God as of no importance to us. That's the will we had. So if God were to follow this supposed rule that he loves us so much he won't interfere with our will, where would you and I be? No, the Bible teaches that the Lord loved us so much that he intervened in our lives. He changed our will and our nature. He brought us into a relationship by faith, just as the Lord is working here with Joseph and his brothers. 
to bring about what he promised to Abraham for the good of the nation of Israel. Friends, if I had a choice between a Lord who thinks so much of my will that he won't interfere with my decisions or a Lord who knows my will so well he appreciates why he has to intervene, I'll take the latter every time. And that's the one that's preached in the Bible. That's where faith attaches. Because when senseless things happen, when terrible things happen, and we don't have immediate answers, things like being thrown in a pit, things like being sold to slave traders, things like spending two years in prison, the answers won't come necessarily in that moment. But the same God is on the throne in the moments of today as the one that was on the throne in the day of Joseph. And the things he's doing here, we know lead to good because we have the rest of the book. We don't have the book that tells us what's coming tomorrow. But we don't need that because we have the Lord and we know his character and we know his sovereignty. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to understand better the power that is yours. Help us to understand, Father, the, the nature of sovereignty and how it works in our lives. Help us to understand better how faith and trust in your goodness can leave us at peace in the midst of trial. Help us to see these things in Joseph. Help us to understand them in our own lives. Help us to rest in what we can know without concern for what we do not know. For, Father, if you could be a God that we could fully understand and fully know in our own power, you'd be no God at all. You'd be one of our own making. But knowing that you are, in fact, the true God, the, tr the creator, the only God, will leave us always wanting for things that we can never appreciate, this side of heaven or perhaps ever. But we do know one thing, Father, according to your word, we know your goodness. We know your love. We know your provision in Christ. And we know our security in that provision. And we thank you, Father, for those things. We can rest in those things. Send us out from here, Father, with answers for those who might question, with hope for those who might despair, and with a Christ and a Savior for those who have need of him. We praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.